Jeopardy. Today's reading is from John 19, verses 28 through to 37. It's John 19, verses 28 through to 37. It reads, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. So we'll pray for Charlie as well as he comes to leave. Father, we praise you for sending your son and for, um, for the great sacrifice that he made and to die for us. And just as Charlie comes to preach um, on the scripture in John 19, and to pray that you bless his words and that you guide um, guide what he's teaching, guide him in what he's teaching us, and that you can help us to receive it and to listen with open hearts, soft hearts. Um, and please, Father, just make this applicable um, and make it something which touches the hearts of um, all of us who are listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, David. Amen. Hi again, guys. Um, let's... Uh, uh, have your Bibles open. Um, we will be doing what we usually do um, now in church, which is uh, dip into that at the end and spend a little bit of time with the passage. Uh, but today um, and for next week, we're not actually going to be going through the passage as we usually do. I'm taking the uh, moment in these next two and last sermons in John's Gospel to have us um, deep dive a little bit into what actually happened on the cross. And next week, we'll be looking at what actually happened at the resurrection. What does that mean for us in the cross and the resurrection? And Tim Bridges, whom I'm sure you can see somewhere on your screen, uh, will be preaching next week for us as he's on placement with us. So that'll be a great privilege for us to be able to um, be served by Tim in that way. I don't know how hardcore you are. I don't know if you've ever wrung the neck of a chicken or boiled a lobster or bashed a wasp to the end of its life, or even trodden on a spider. I'm going to be honest with you. I like to be a little bit honest sometimes. Um, I'm a bit of a wimp. I'm a little bit 
of a wimp. I'll happily eat the chicken and I'll have a little bit of Thermidor, but the idea of beating the crushing bones or the cracking of the shell, it just sends me a little bit faint. I don't care what you think of me, Conrad. I'm just not as manly as you are. What happened on the cross is linked to that. In the most simplest of images, but in the deepest of truth, what happened on the cross was the crushing of the head of a snake. Taking that image through its process, with each moment of the crushing process of its skull, layers and layers of theology are going on for one reason and one reason only to release the boa constrictor of death around the neck of its helpless victim. John gives us nine verses on the crucifixion. Just nine verses, but don't let yourself just skip over it in, the, in a small section of a massive chapter. It's the pinnacle of the story of Christianity. It's the pinnacle of the story of humanity. If you're new to this or or you could take us through this better than I can. We still have so much to see and hear, and we won't even touch the depths of this in this sermon. But if we do it well, we will not only see what happened on the cross, but we will know the God who calls us friends all the more. We need to know what went on there because it's important for us to get the gospel right. It is really important. Why? Well, because it, it deepens our understanding of God, which deepens and grows our reliance on him, which brings us more into the fruit of the Spirit, here, now, today, before we die, for the sake of our joy, today, and God's glory in his church, but as importantly, of others finding joy as well. If we do this well and we understand the gospel more and more in the pinnacle of humanity, we can see the effect this will have on the world. In these nine verses, we see the final moments of Jesus' earthly life, hanging on to two planks of wood for the world to point and laugh at. With the last whimper of a man, the world thought that they'd swept under the carpet a small blip in time, a political annoyance. It's just been dealt with. He's done. We've killed him. But this man, hanging on the cross, the annoyance of humanity was not finished off by more powerful people than he, but has finished the most glorious act of God for those very people. With a weak voice, we see Christ saying the strongest words ever heard. It is finished. Jesus dies. Completed, finished, done. In line with the great prophetic call of the psalmist, the call to God for the sake of humanity that David used as a prayer for his own personal distress at that time, hundreds of years before we hear the voice of Christ. Perhaps unknowingly, David, speaking God's word of the distressed Jesus, they come to life. Why? For the renewal of humanity. In the pits of his own anxiety, David uses the same words as Jesus was going to use. As Jesus made a way for David 
and all distressed and fearful people to be saved from the darkness of this world. You'll know the line from other gospel accounts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Psalm 22 carries on, and this is the, the end of the psalm. It says this, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him. They shall bow all who go down to the dust, even one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generations that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it. He, singular male, has done, completed, finished it. As Jesus states that it is finished in verse 30 of chapter 19 of John, we look at him with David and we also join in. He has done it. It is finished. But what has he done? Well, I want to take you to Genesis 3 for a second. The serpent's head was just crushed on the cross. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. The serpent took it upon himself to trick the humans. The serpent is an image of the devil whose only aim in this world is to distract and take us away from God. He pounced and he caught hold of humanity. When the humans were foolish enough to follow the devil away from God, falling away into what the Bible calls sin, they took their dominion and their stewardship of creation with them, they fell under judgment, and they fell under the justice of God. But also so did the serpent. Life became hard for the humans, and it ended in death. Eternal separation from God for the humans. And in this devastating story, that certainly reflects the reality of life, God also said to the serpent that one day, one single male heir of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning. Verse 15, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This act of crucifixion of Jesus is simply the striking of Christ's heel. And although we still often see death as the finality of all things good, the desperate end of light in our lives, to Jesus, this is only a bruise on the underside of his foot. The snake thinks it's an amazing win to grasp hold of the heel, but no amount of venom or tooth could withstand the weight of Christ pressing down on his head. This is the service of God for you, and for me, that is the finality, that is the finishedness of all things. As Jesus passed from life to death, he enabled you and I to pass from death to life. 
Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This service of giving life, it shifts many things. And I want to tell you about five of them, and I'm going to touch on three. What this does is as we look at the crucifixion, it gives us five clear points of theology where we can study God, we can see what's going on, and he can explain to us the fullness of the story that is now finished. The first is, is a new covenant is enabled. A new covenant is enabled. The second, we were reconciled on the cross. The third, that we were ransomed and redeemed. The fourth, that we were propitiated. And the fifth, that we were justified. I'm going to touch on three, and we're going to start with the covenant. See, from day one, God promised. God promised. Lord, you promised. You are a covenant king. God makes promises. He makes arrangements with seals stronger than any human wax and more powerful than the queen's signature. But as Jesus died, a new covenant between God and man was established. The word covenant was in general use at the time, not just as a promising contract in general, but as a specific last will and testament. Note the word testament. There's very rarely in today's language any other use of the word testament other than in the last will and testament of somebody and in our Old and New Testaments, of which if we translate it into modern English, that testament word, we would not be reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'd be reading the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Some of you will know that term testament from being much more prepared than I am and having written a last will and testament. Let me read you this from Hebrews 9, verse 13. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now we know that. When a will is to be put into practice, the person has died. But in Hebrews, therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant. And then it says, for where there is a will involved. That word covenant and that word will in the Greek, they're the same words. Both of them are covenants. Both of them are testaments. A new covenant for where there is a covenant involved. It's just for us English people translated. We need to know that he's talking about a will because a man has died. And when a man dies, the inheritance comes because there's been a promise and a covenant. So it's a common word. Christ's death brought into use his last will and testament at the cross, his promise for the recipients. Well, what was the covenant that he brought on the cross? I'm going to give you three passages, Luke 22. And likewise, the cup 
after they'd eaten at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood is the new covenant for his disciples. That in this promise, in this last will and testament, his blood is key. His death is happening and that provides the inheritance. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the, of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This new covenant is not about following law. This new covenant has been given to us as ministers of the Spirit. The covenant is about inheritance of God himself, the Holy Spirit, who gives us life. So from the death of a man, with his last will and testament, is to give people life. Hebrews 19, our final passage in this section, therefore, the writer says, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We've read that just a minute ago but I want to pick out that line. The mediator of the new covenant has come so that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the spirit that comes is not just inheritance for us, but it is an eternal reality. This covenant takes us into life forever. Those who are called may receive. So by the shedding of blood, humanity may receive an eternal inheritance, life given by God the Holy Spirit in this life and in the next. Jesus is the mediator. He is the way. He's the only one that can give a new will. This promise was brought in and is the promise we communicate as church. This is all we have to tell the world. We are ministers, friends. Just because I'm a full-time minister doesn't stop the fact that we are all ministers of this new covenant, this new testament, because unlike a last will and testament, it isn't just for grandchildren and the Battersea Dogs home. We are in receipt of it, and so can all of those who are called be. Limitless inheritance, because there's a new testament. We are servants of that. Do you count yourself? Firstly, to be in receipt of that new covenant, in receipt of what happened on the cross, giving you inheritance, and do you own that role as a minister of this new covenant? However gently that needs to be for you, it's a role that's given as part of the will. So the new covenant came in, and we know the covenant that it is at this basic level. I want to now look closer uh, ransomed and redeemed. Well, redemption is a word we don't often use. It's very rarely used in modern English. In fact, it's very rare in antiquity as well. It's, it's just a very rare word. We only tend to use it now for religion, for this Christ figure, the redemption given to humanity. But in the first century, when Christ was, it was actually a much more common word. When we say redeemer or redemption, we know it means something about those churchy folk. But the readers of this, the readers of that word redemption, 
would have immediately thought of a non-religious term. The basic word was simply ransom. They're of the same word group, ransom and redemption. It's a word that's derived from a general meaning to loose, to loosen something, to loosen your clothing or, or um, animals that are tied up, to, to loose them off, to take off your armor, loose yourself of that. Sometimes it was used when, when people were loosed from captivity. It particularly applied to prisoners. Prisoners of war, when a ransom from the other side was paid and a price was put on their head. That is the ransom money. In time, the word group developed and it, it gave precise expression to that particular form of loosing. The word develops into one word meaning to secure release by payment of ransom, to redeem something. So freeing a slave, freeing a prisoner with money. When the New Testament speaks of redemption, we hear in 1 Timothy 2, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time, Paul writes to Timothy. Christ paid the price for our redemption. The price paid must be adequate for the purchase in question. This indicates an equivalence or a substitution. That person is worth this amount of money to the captives. They substitute the person with money and everyone's happy. To buy the freedom of humanity, the ransom price was blood. Blood big enough to substitute for the deserved death of transgressing in Genesis 3, of overstepping, of breaking the law of God, of turning away from God in the beginning. The price of that is death. The curse given to humanity when, when we followed the snake's whispers was that life was no longer ours to live. Humanity were to die. Within the grips of the serpent, the punishment of death was the substitution on the cross for you and for me. The ransom cost was the son of God's life for mine. So what was happening on the cross? He was paying the due price for your freedom from death and hell. Looking up at the cross, we, we rightly can say, it should have been me. But by the grace of the covenant that he has written, the New Testament and will is that life is offered through redemption of himself. And finally, I want to look at this word, propitiation. Now, you may not even be able to say it. I struggle at most accounts. It's an old word, we don't use it a lot, but it is in our scriptures. We don't want to be a church that talk about sin and damnation all the time. But we wouldn't be a church unless we knew the full story of God and taught it faithfully. Looking at ourselves in the light of Christ, being aware of the grip of the snake that he has on us, and knowing the reason for the release of the covenant, the cost of our payment, the substitutionary role that Christ took on was to appease the righteous and just wrath of God. 
Christianity often presents itself as garden parties and Victoria sponges of loveliness and gentleness. We simply like to talk about love. But love is limited in our view of it. We like to talk about love because we love love, but we love our love. We like how we love. We don't particularly like how others love. And if we go outside of humanity, we see a whole new kind of love. Our love is a mere reflection of his love. You need to remember it works that way around. But what we see on the cross is brutal and gruesome. This is love. But not as we like to present it. What is happening on the cross is righteousness versus sin. Luke 18, we see here the tax collector standing far off. Verse 13, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. If we take that to the Greek, we see, God, propitiate me, the sinner. That word propitiation, it derives from joyful, from joyous, to make something joyful or something gracious. And added to its biblical format and meaning, it means to appease the wrath of God and therefore turn it to joy. Propitiation is appeasing or averting God's anger. Now, rightly, we dislike the wrath of God. We like to leave it in the old covenant, the Old Testament, forget about it with that nasty God on that side of the book. But we cannot fully comprehend the cross. We cannot fully comprehend the bloodshed, the substitute of the inheritance without this. Let's not forget that this is part of the good news. This is the light in the darkness that John is so often talking about as we go through his gospel. This is the water to simply keep you alive, turning into wine to celebrate a lifetime. This is the resurrection of Lazarus that was impossible sadness morphed into celebration. The Wesleyan theologian, Dr. Maldwin Hughes, he said this, he said, let it be granted that anger is not an ideal word for our purpose and that we use it only, as Augustine would say, in order that we might not keep silent. Our concern is with facts, not with words. The fact that we have to face is that in the nature of things, there must be an internal recoil against the unholy part of the all-holy God. Internal recoil against the unholy on the part of the all-holy God. Forgive me. Let's not confuse the wrath of God against sinners with a human anger. We humans are always sinfully angry. Leon Morris writes that, but upon analysis, this seems to be largely because our anger is such a selfish passion, usually involving a large amount of irrationality together with a lack of self-control. This isn't simply the punishment that we pass to daddy when he gets back from work. This is the right response to choosing the snake over God. This is the punishment in the face of a just 
and good lawyer, a judge sitting there and making the right call. God is holiness. God is holy, and holiness cannot be near unholiness. It's like oil and water. Can't mix. Sin, sin has its wages. There is a result of turning away from God. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, sin's wages are, will be paid. It will be punished. If it were to go without, God would no longer be just. If God were not to be wrathful against sin, he would not be a just and good God. We love justice when it's done rightly. We just don't like it when it's on us. This is neither the God of the Old Testament nor the New Testament. He is not just an angry God, but that is part of him. It is the fullness of his character that we see jointly together with grace. We are not here to see the complete justice of God on its own. It never comes alone. It always comes with grace. But it is good and just. You see, Jesus gave himself on the cross to be the propitiation for us. Justice and love triumphant in nine verses in John's gospel. He appeased the wrath of himself. If we can understand the wrath of God as the right response to unholiness, we move it slightly further away at this point from our emotive response to punishment, then we can, we can see quite happily that propitiation is the means of averting the wrath from the sinner. In the Old Testament, we see God's wrath in a very real and serious way. But he's not simply angry all the time. You see, in the Old Testament, we see everywhere the wrath of God but his grace and love. It's only fair to add that the Old Testament consistently regards God as a God of mercy, a God of propitiation. We see everywhere, just like um, in Genesis chapter 3, these people have turned away, they followed the devil. What's the next thing God does? He doesn't just banish them to hell instantly. He knows that they're now knowing and aware of their nakedness. Something when we turned away from the love of God made us feel shameful about ourselves. Made us fearful and cold. We knew our nakedness, whereas before there was nothing to worry about. We were God's creation. But then they looked at themselves and said, actually, there's parts of us we no longer like. And God bent down low. And he could have just been wrathful and banished them then, but he made them clothes. God is a God, yes, of, of punishment and wrath, but he also clothed the cold. He provides correct and just ways in which the consequences of sin may be averted. Now, we do find it difficult it's important to notice that this was truth that was known and valued by the people of God in the Old Testament. They knew that God was merciful. They called out on him often and they trusted that he would come. They didn't find it as difficult as we do to combine the ideas that God loved them and that he hated all evil and would punish it severely. Divine love and divine wrath are compatible aspects of the divine nature. There is a divine wrath but it 
is always hand in hand with a certain tenderness to his creation. God comes close to those. It's because of that background in the Old Testament that we need to know what propitiation is. The wrath is the wrath of a loving father who yearns for his children to come back to him. There's forgiveness of sin. We talk about forgiveness a lot, but this forgiveness necessarily involves the laying aside of wrath. He is just. So it's important to note the removal of wrath is due not to man securing such an offering that God is impressed by. Well, you've done enough, guys, so I'll relent on my wrath. No. Without understanding our wage for sin, we empty God's forgiveness of all meaning. The scripture is clear that the wrath of God is visited upon sinners or else the Son of God dies for them. On the cross, Jesus appeased the wrath of God for me and for you. That he propitiated. This is the cross. Either he dies or we die. Romans 5, 8 to 11. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his love, saved by his life. And finally, at verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Our just and loving God, within his own person, came and hung on that cross to appease the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so the water has turned to wine. The sick will be healed. The dead will rise. The captives have been set free. The price has been paid. The inheritance can flow to you. And thank God to a sinner like me, a covenant has been established and it's been enabled. We were reconciled. We've been ransomed and redeemed. We've been propitiated and we've been justified. The snake has been crushed. And although he's still wiggling around, we know that our inheritance will come to fullness as we meet our maker, or he comes before that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your New Testament. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have enabled. We thank you, Lord, that this isn't just nine verses that we, we hop over, but that so much happened in that moment on the cross. My God, my God, it is finished. We pray, Lord. We pray that in our hearts, this message that we've known for so many years, 
some of us, and it might be newer for some of us. May it not be overwhelming, but may we be so joyful that, that through your blood, you've redeemed us. That through your death, you have become the propitiation for our sins. That we have been justified, reconciled, and we live in the inheritance of this new covenant. May you stir in our hearts by the power of your spirit, that life eternal, as we go into the rest of the day and tomorrow, we have new eyes because of Christ on the cross. Fresh perspective on everything around us, knowing that that looks like the way of the snake, but we've moved back into the way of Eden. That you, gracious Father, are willing to clothe us and heal us and take us from wrath to joy from victorious sponges to the whole celebration. May we spend time, Lord, knowing that that celebration continues from here into eternity where we say, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I've moved around the Bible a lot. So just open it to the passage in John and spend some time with Jesus in that book. Look at the, the story of the cross and then we'll have a moment on Zoom in a minute of sharing anything, of thoughts, comments, prophecies, further reflections and encouragements.
窗，树立灌溉。Then from north to south, land east to west, we hear Christ be magnified. Where the whole earth echoing His eminence, His name would burst from sea and sky, from rivers to the mountain tops. We'd hear Christ. I'll stand strong and worship Him, and if He puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice 'cause You're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with You. 'Cause death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing and my song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let His praise arise. Christ be. Magnified in me, oh, Christ be magnified on the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Leah. Let's finish our service with a prayer.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this service this morning. And thank you for what Shirley uh, brought us this morning, Lord. We want to keep it in our hearts and to remind us every day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, because you fulfilled, you fulfilled the, the scripture and you accomplished everything on the cross. You crushed the serpent's head, Lord. And through that, there is hope. Through that, there is victory, Lord, for us. There is love. Help us to remind this every day. In our every situation, life, in our difficulties, Lord. That you pay the, the, the price on the cross. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain us always. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. In the name of Christ. Amen. Let's gather on, on Zoom and to chat together. Bye.